0: Hello everybody and welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. One where I'm gonna do my best to keep my energy levels l- higher than a minus 10. Because my kid is sick and uh, is not sleeping very well. I am functioning on less than the required number of hours of sleep. Also, you'll see I'm wearing a Christmas jumper. I have no idea when this video comes out because I didn't even look. So it might be after Christmas, but I was like... I just like to smile. smiling's my favorite. This jumper's so... If you're watching this, if you're listening, I'm wearing a Christmas jumper. You probably gathered that. Uh, But it was like, this is so warm and comfortable, I'm just not going to change it. I'm on my third cup of coffee. It's (laughs) 8.30am. Let's just jump into it. This is A Dingo Ate My Baby. Reasonable Doubt and Infanticide. Uh, This is from David. Thank you so much, David. If you're brand new to this show, what happens is... uh, one of our fine writers today, David, writes me a script. I've never read it before. I have no idea what this story is. I'm going to read it. It's called a cold read, which is also something that mystics do. You know, people are like, oh, I sense some trouble in your future. Uh, it's also called a, uh, a sight reading. But that makes it sound a bit too professional, doesn't it? You know, like you're doing your know, like grade six piano or something. Like you got to sight read this. Uh, uh-oh. So uh, let's just jump into it, shall we? Infanticide's going to... This could be an interesting one. I remember... With infanticide, I can't remember if this is true or not. But if you're a mum, and you have a kid, and if you murder that kid in the first year of its life, it's not murder. It's like, I mean, yeah, it's infanticide, but it's like, that's a defense. Don't do don't rely on me. I'm not a lawyer. But I vaguely remember that being a thing. Which always struck me as a bit weird, but then, you know, I guess that happens. I mean... <laughs> This is an example of how tired I am. I'm like, yeah, mothers murder their babies. Guess that happens. (laughs) Simon, that's horrific. Why are we just so casual about that? (laughs) Let's just get on with it. In the vast, sprawling realm of human experience... There are very few things that could happen to a person more emotionally devastating and traumatizing than the death of a child. Parents are instinctively driven to great lengths to protect their children, even at the expense of their own lives. And when a child dies, the overwhelming grief is among the most intense feelings that any human being can possibly endure. Now imagine that your child is not only dead, but you stand accused of the murder. And not only that, but you're convicted of that murder and sent to prison for life. Oh my god, this is the worst thing I could possibly imagine. It's like, one like yeah it's like what what did what did David write the, even at the expense of their own lives it's like yeah yeah I guess I'd sacrifice my life for my kid it's like not something I think about very much because it's really unpleasant but it's like I mean and I also can't imagine I'd ever be in a situation where I have to do that unless someone listens to that episode and is like you know is like that guy from Saw and puts me in that situation which is really horrible to think about don't do that to me I'm so sorry what did I do to offend you um, but yeah of course I mean, I think that's obvious. I mean, I'm not exactly the most selfless person in the world, but it's my own kid, isn't it? The ensuing years of incarceration and denunciation as baby killer must then be spent not only grieving the tremendous loss of your own child, but in fighting desperately for your own freedom. Because in the face of one of the worst crimes a parent could possibly commit you claim that you're innocent today we shall investigate two australian cases that of lady chamberlain and kathleen Folbig, where police accusations of infanticide were based largely on circumstantial evidence where the ambiguities around the infant's death frustrated attempts to uncover the truth and where the defendant's version of events split the public between those who thought their stories were outlandish and those who thought They were entirely feasible. In short, on today's Casual Criminalist, we'll be tackling what is colloquially known in alleged cases of infanticide as the dingo defense. Oh, I don't really know what... What is a dingo? It's one of those things that is so Australian. I don't really know what it is, but I assume because it's Australian, it's something that would want to kill me. Yeah, that definitely... I'm looking it up on my iPad right now. That definitely looks like something... How big is that? Medium-sized canine. Look, these wild dogs, you know... I found that that could be quite dangerous. Do they have rabies in Australia? Rabies is really scary. Yeah, okay, it's Australian, so I assume it's going to be able to kill me. But I guess the idea is that the dingoes take the babies and you're like, yeah, no, 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 I didn't murder my baby, a a dingo took it. I just looked up because I was super curious. It was the Infanticide Act of 1938, uh, which was the law I was talking about where there's the, the, whether the mum, when the mum kills a baby under one year old. Basically, it is still a crime. It used to be punishable by the death penalty which is a little bit intense and by a little bit intense i mean a lot intense and the infanticide act of 1938 was brought in to remove to abolish the death penalty for a woman who deliberately killed her newborn child and then basically in the 21st century eh, wikipedia here says it's become common for a severely postnatally depressed mother who kills her infant child not to receive a prison sentence except in exceptional circumstances and it's like I, I think this is the courts or in the, the, it's an act. So parliament recognizing that, yeah, people who do that are not in their right mind. So it is a defense to murder. I think diminished responsibility is maybe what's that called? Yeah, there we go. I do remember. Woo. Okay. Uh, carrying on. Lindsay Chamberlain. Or Chamberlain? Chamberlain? L-A-I-N. I don't know. Roll with me. It's the 17th of August, 1980. Lindy and Michael Chamberlain have arrived with their two sons, Aidan and Regan, and their two-month-old daughter, Azaria, at Uluru to do some camping. Uluru is that rock that sticks out of the desert in the middle of nowhere, right? I made a video about it on another channel that I do called Geographics. You're welcome to check it out. Plug over, carrying on. Michael Chamberlain was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor and Lindsay played the role of a winsome and dutiful pastor's wife. Uluru is a sandstone rock formation that dates back 540 million years, the Cambrian period, when our direct ancestors were jawless fish. Uluru juts shockingly out of the ground, 1,150 feet in the air, in otherwise flat, arid, and sand-blasted outback landscape in 1980 the nine kilometer five mile wide natural edifice would more commonly be called Ayers rock named by an explorer after a uh, nothing 19th century bureaucrat allure is a name that comes from the local aboriginal pityanyat jarab dialect language i have named in the script for no particular reason other than to torture simon and amuse the audience ah well sort of david you also put the pronunciation for me there in phonetics but uh if i didn't have that it would be Well, I have to say it's kind of pronounced almost exactly as it's spelt which is one thing I love about Japanese or not less so with Chinese but Japanese when you just guess how it's pronounced generally for the most part it's quite easy unlike other languages whereas there are no they have hats on the letters and they've got that weird backwards question mark underneath things and you're like why is this here what does it mean Uluru, as a word, has no particular meaning. Instead, Uluru is the name of a local clan who claim ownership of the rock. Uluru has been a spiritual site for the local Anangu clans for as long as they have existed as a culture and resided in that area. With humans first crossing the massive desert to Uluru 10 to 20,000 years ago, in the current culture forming somewhere between 300 and 1,000 years ago. More recently, Uluru has become a political football for every politician in Canberra who likes to pretend that they know every single jot of aboriginal history. Since it's what one did at Uluru, the Adventist pastor and his wife made camp there alongside dozens of other holidaymakers, worded spread of a dingo infestation in the area. The dingo is basically a tamed wolf that never quite became a domestic dog. Humans have been breeding wolves and dogs for nearly 20,000 years. Dingoes are functionally the neighborhood pit bull that you're worried about turning vicious at the drop of a hat. Except in the outback and minus roughly 4,000 years of human selective breeding, they're cute, but they've got a massive temper. In the wild, they're ruthless hunters. And if you think dingoes sound bad, Simon, just wait until we look into drop bears, which are a carnivorous subspecies of koala that inhabit the Blue Mountains and drop out of trees when attacking their prey. Holy <laughs> By the way, this is the first time I've ever mentioned this um but i'm thinking about starting a channel about nature and covering like like this sort of thing because there's some crazy out there like i did a bunch of like looking around into like what's up with nature you know because i always enjoy those like nature documentaries and stuff and it's stuff like this drop bears (laughs) that would make a great video (laughs) like what is that what is with that oh but maybe maybe i've got enough channels who knows? Not like 13. For nearly a century, dingoes in the area have been hunted and killed by men called doggers in order to keep their population from getting dangerous to local settlers. From the 1920s onward, the local Anagu people also began to turn in dingo pelts in exchange for compensation. Over the next few decades, wildlife control was formalized into one of the responsibilities of the government run park service. Unfortunately, in the late 1970s, the government had been woefully inefficient. The dingo population was out of control. Tourists at Uluru worsened this fact by feeding the seemingly cute and cuddly dogs emboldening them to approach campsites in the australian winter of 1980 there were numerous reports of dingoes attacking people but so far most people had gotten away with it with just a few bites and scratches yeah nature is like i don't know i remember once i was camping uh, in america and someone was just like yeah yeah yeah, no 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 i was just camping one time like around here and uh yeah a bear just came just cut the side of my tent open like what <laughs> just like they're, they're just sleeping the night a bear comes along, uses his claw to cut the side of their tent open, grabs them in their sleeping bag, like the their sleeping bag, and just starts dragging them away. They wake up while this is happening and just start screaming and shouting at the bear like, ah, ah, oh bear, oh and then the bear realizes it's a person and runs off. And then you're like, oh no. One, that was absolutely terrifying. I was gonna become eaten by a bear. And two, now I've got to buy a new sleeping bag and tent. Stupid bears. Quick PSA. Quint, intelligent but dangerous mammals and marsupials swiftly learn to lose their fear of humans if they're treated to a free meal. Feeding them endangers others further down the line. Yeah. (laughs) Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't be feeding the wild animals. And I don't care how cute they are or if you want to lure them nearby so you can take pictures of them. If you visit the outback, don't feed the dingoes. If you visit the Blue Mountains, don't feed the drop bears can you feed them i mean they're dropping down and eating your face it seems and if you visit melbourne feed everyone that bunch of hippies looked like they haven't had a decent meal since before they got their first nipple piercing at the age of five <laughs> i know not i don't really know much about australia david lives in australia um so i guess this is like pe- people from melbourne i didn't know i did know someone from melbourne once melbourne sounded really nice then maybe that's just because i'm a massive hipster but that is just so i really do feel like that the hipster though right now with my christmas jumper and my massive beard i've got to shave and wear more appropriate clothing but that is just some typical intercity aussie banter appropriate for this episode for a taste of aussie color mate and some aussie banter would certainly have commenced on the evening of the 17th of august 1980 as the local campers lit up their barbecues and cooked steak not prawns or shrimp which aussies generally don't do on the barbecue and tucked into beer and not fosters which is widely regarded as nat's piss and not even served in 99.999 percent of aussie pubs just the ones for tourists oh by the way i just remembered something interesting about that person from melbourne Uh, who I went to university with, they were like, uh, they were the first person who was like, oh, you've got a nice sounding voice. You should do something with that. And that in a weird way kind of led me to where we are today. So thank you, random person from Melbourne. I do think they were were from Melbourne. There was one other thing I remember about them. They were telling me about this thing called a prefrontal doctor or something, which is like this, this, it's hot in Melbourne and then in the afternoon some like cool air comes down from the mountains so if that's Melbourne I'm thinking about about the right city if that's some other Australian city uh then I apologize Foster's is awful David's absolutely right I don't know why we drink that in the UK like it came over and was like marketed as this Australian beer it's crap though isn't it it's really bad it's cheap I guess it's quite appealing you know that's that's a big like Carling it's objectively shite but it is cheap Michael and Lindy Chamberlain chatted with their friends for a bit while they cooked dinner. Being August and winter in the southern hemisphere, darkness had already closed in. While dinner was being prepared, Lindy decided it was time to put her two-month-old daughter down for the night in the Chamberlain's nearby tent. A few minutes later, Lindy Chamberlain returned to the group and fed one of her sons a can of baked beans from the car. Not long after that, Lindy got up again, saying that she heard a disturbance over at the tent. She headed over there to check again, and according to Lindy, she saw a dingo standing outside the tent, which she shooed off and it quickly vanished into the darkness a moment later Lindy's screams went up into the night air as area the two-month-old baby was no longer there the local australian revelries and good humor humor came to an abrupt stop lindy immediately claimed that a dingo had taken the infants and carried off in, into the night outside of the campsite there were no art there was no artificial lighting and beyond the small huddle of humanity there existed nothing but miles and miles of sea and pitch black the local campers assembled all their torches and set off in search of the dingo listening out for any cries of a child they heard nothing a panicked and sleepless light lay ahead authorities arrived and joined in the search dawn came and they still found nothing the number of searchers swelled their haphazard searching methods became more disciplined and painstaking but only a little there was still nothing a week went by the searchers found a small baby's jumpsuit and a singlet half submerged in the red desert sands, and uh, four kilometers or two point five miles from the campsite, the collar was stained with blood. It belonged to maybe Azaria. Her body was never found. Seems pretty open and shut right now. uh Yeah. Also, there was a crazy story in the news like, a couple of months ago. I think it was in Russia, and some woman's child had got lost in the month and the, in in the woods. And the kid was like two years old or less than two, like a year and a half old or something. And they were in the woods for like three days. And at the time, my kid was a year and a half. I'm like, god damn! Those Russians made out of sturdier stuff. Because the idea that Mikey could survive in the woods for a day and a (laughs) half—be like, what? How? How is that possible? The circus begins four months later on december the 15th in the small town of alice springs smack dab in the middle of the outback and the largest human settlement for hundreds of miles an inquest into the disappearance of baby azaria was held the disappearance of azaria chamberlain had caught national attention and the inquest received lurid amounts of coverage by newspapers across the country amplifying the feeling of tragedy the inquest dragged on for two months is this really, like, inquest-worthy material? I mean, obviously, a child being taken and eaten by a wild animal is, like, desperately sad, and it's going to get a lot of press coverage, but, I mean, it seems pretty open and shut, and I'm assuming there's more to it, so I'm obviously missing a trick, but it does seem a bit, like, this seems a bit unnecessary, doesn't it? It's like, (laughs) okay, it's really unlucky and unfortunate, and let's shoot all the dingoes, but... That's all. Technology also intervened. In a historic first for Australia, the verdict of the inquest was broadcast live across Australia to a large viewership and an insincere and jaw slobbering media. Wait, that doesn't seem very nice. Why should there be cameras allowed in these inquests? These should be behind closed doors. Wait, are they allowed cameras in courtrooms in the US? Because that's not a thing in the UK. And that's why they have those people drawing sketches of people. But then you also get sketches of people in the us but then there's also live broadcasts of stuff isn't there well that's weird i don't think that should be allowed the inquest ruled that given the jumpsuit found in the desert stained around the neck Azaria was disappeared and presumed dead furthermore the inquest found that the dingo attack was the likely cause of death <laughs> yeah i mean based on all the evidence i would reach that same conclusion and i get in a few minutes the feeling in a few minutes it would be simon you idiot <laughs> try and be a little more competent yeah However, the magistrate threw a bit of a wrench into the proceedings. In his view, if a dingo did indeed kill the child, the remains should have been found and the clothes torn to shreds. Dingoes are scavengers, so they eat anything they can find, but they're not large predators in the view of the magistrate. Even if the infant was tragically consumed by a wild animal like a dingo, some or all of the bones should still be out there. And before you say it, yes, wild dogs consume bones, but even dingoes do not, for instance, and I apologize for this, consume entire human skulls um yeah this i was away with some mates this weekend and we uh we cooked up some giant steaks on the barbecue yes it's the middle of winter but you know you got to do what you got to do and these are like some ribeye steaks with some giant bones in them and my mate had his dog with him and he's just like yeah yeah he can he can eat those bones and i'm like this is a massive bone and that dog just chews that bone into tiny pieces and eats the bones of of two giant steaks Just fully. And then the next morning, having some coffee. (laughs) And that dog is throwing up bones onto my carpet. (laughs) Like, oh. It's like this weird yellowy thing with just like it's mostly just little shards of bones, like a little cat throwing up a mothball. It's like, dude, maybe we shouldn't give the dog the giant bones. But he loves it. Loves it. In the view, and and that dog's fairly big. I think he could eat a skull. He'd figure out a way. In the view of the inquest the remains must still be out there and yet extensive searching found nothing further yeah but the australian outback's really big i mean I'd, I've, as i've said i don't know much about australia but i know the outback is large furthermore the clothing was not found torn and strewn around the area but neatly put together so the magistrate concluded with little evidence that quote the body of his area was taken from the possession of the dingo and disposed of by an unknown method by a person or persons name unknown the person disposing of the body was a troubling thought why would a person find the body of an infant and simply dispose of it without alerting the authorities one could conceivably see someone unthinkingly just solemnly burying the child without guessing the age of the remains or considering that someone might be looking for them who would possibly think that <laughs> there's the remains of a child in the outback and you're like ah oh, this was probably a while ago no nah, probably forgotten about by now is that how old does that have to be 100 years 50 years 20 years no no come on but this statement from the magistrate televised across the nation also set the fires of people's imaginations regarding more nefarious reasons why anyone want to quickly hide all signs of a body conspiracy theories began to germinate nationwide yeah i mean it could be that someone nabbed the baby like went into the like as the dingo did but being a person rather than a dingo just took the baby and then murdered it which is i i just i don't get it why would you kill a baby it's that's insane suspicions of infanticide the local authorities were also dissatisfied with the results of the inquest there are two interpretations as to why they were dissatisfied dissatisfied one cynical and one generous. The cynical interpretation. <laughs> I wonder which one's going to appeal to Simon: the cynical one or the generous one. <laughs> the cynical interpretation was that the police had egg on their face from this entire affair. In the inquest, the magistrate criticised them harshly for their slow response to Azaria's disappearance, especially in the crucial few hours after it happened, and also for their slapdash search, which went an entire week before turning up anything. The government also had egg on their face, having let the dingo infestation around a popular tourist site in the Northern Territory get so far out of control that a defenseless child was killed. Not only killed, but taken from a tent at a campsite that would always have been secure if dingoes had not been so numerous and emboldened. All of this was compounded by the blistering and humiliating fact that the entire nation had watched the verdict. Thus, the authorities were motivated by self-interest to find another explanation for baby Azaria's death. I mean yeah okay it seems a little bit far to go be like yeah yeah, let's blame it on a person where it's just maybe we should have just control the dingoes better. I feel like the government or whoever's responsible for this should just be like we'll do a better job in the future. It's not like they it's a very unfortunate accident if this is what's happened um I don't think I don't think the government can really be blamed for not keeping the wildlife under or maybe that's an Australian thing. <laughs> it's like yeah yeah government's responsible for the wildlife not killing us don't know and here's the generous interpretation the facts of the case were highly ambiguous there was a lack of any real physical evidence beyond the tiny jumpsuit and singlet underneath and the fact that a stingo was present at the chamberlain's tent just before the disappearance entirely depended on the testimony of lady of lindy chamberlain herself the person who had last seen the child alive and who in normal circumstances would be the prime suspect in a disappeared presumed dead case and although Lindy had not seen her child being carried off by the dingo prior to checking in with the tent, Lindy Chamberlain rigidly maintains that a dingo had indeed taken her baby. But why would the police be so quick to suspect a pastor's wife would harm her newborn child? When I opened this episode, I mentioned our parents will instinctively go to great lengths to protect their children, even at the expense of their own lives. Naturally, when I describe a parent's instinctive protectiveness of the child, I speak in generalities. Yeah, I mean, there's the postpartum depression, right? Which is which is a major mental thing that affects a lot of women and that's got to be taken into consideration for sure because we know this is this can be a problem it's why that 1938 infanticide act exists roughly 2.5 percent of all murder victims are children of that number approximately 60 percent of child murders are committed by one or both of their parents oh my god psychos and while men testosterone adult psychotic apes that they are responsible for roughly 90 percent of all murders generally of course they are <laughs> not surprised by this anyway it's like yeah 9 out of 10 murders of men <laughs> yeah because we're violent d-t. uh filicides committed by parents are typically closer to 50 50. roughly 40 percent of all child murders committed by a mother are done before the infant has reached the age of one and roughly 75 percent of all murders of a newborn or infant under the age of one year are carried out by the mother common motivations for infanticide are number one by a long lead psychosis or mental instability brought on by postpartum depression followed by a range of other mental illnesses that afflict a mother while she is the primary caregiver of an entirely dependent infant when it comes to female serial killers a disproportionate number of them choose infants as their victims which is super f***ed up in case you were but off this is one of those ones where it writes that fine line of like simon don't you know blame people who have mental illnesses but also those people are murdering children so it's like wait what was, what's the politically correct or like morally correct morally one's a lot more complicated uh what's the moral who should where where you, you get what i'm saying right you understand the difficulty oh so complicated in case you were wondering, the evolutionary hypothesis for given uh, given for this discrepancy between male and female family violence is that for at least 300,000 of the past 315,000 years that homo sapiens have existed, not to mention ancestral foraging species going back roughly 3 million years, mothers frequently had to practice infanticide. The reason was grim but simple. Nomadic hunter-gatherer mothers could not carry and nurse too many children under the age of 5 all at once while constantly on the move across hundreds of miles in search of food. Wow! i didn't know there was i mean obviously obviously uh you know thinking about it for a sec there could be you know like we see here an evolutionary reason for this behavior but i've just never had it laid out like that and i've never considered it like that that's super interesting and disturbing paleolithic birth control and abortion were not really a thing only in sedentary agrarian society starting twelve thousand years ago could one care for many small children under five at once. Thus, in the same way that aggression, interpersonal, and intergroup violence seem to have become ingrained in the darker and more visceral psyche of deranged men, the impulse toward infanticide seems to come in a minority of women in particularly acute periods of mental illness. But textbook theorizing that only applies to a tiny fraction of the human population, that is to say 0.000012% of the population who kill their children, while most parents would. Give their very lives to them is not enough for police to lay charges for murder yeah i think generally it's like when it's like the the woman's the, the wife's been murdered husband's number one person to consider when the child has been con- murdered i don't think parents are automatically on the list of you know potential murderers which is interesting but then came the first physical evidence ultraviolet photographs of azaria's jumpsuit seemed to indicate to pathologists that the blood splatter was the result of an edged weapon wielded by a human not the jaws of an animal. Dingoes, they asserted, could not make that kind of wound with their teeth. Most notably, the clothing was not torn to shreds, which one would expect to see from an animal attack, but it only had a few small nicks and cuts. Ultraviolet light also showed the imprint of a possibly bloody adult handprint on the garments of about Lindy Chamberlain's size. Police also seized the Chamberlain's car, a yellow Holden Tirana. What sort of car is this? I've never heard of that like not even heard of the brand (laughs) Holden maybe it's an Australian car there in the front seat pathologists found signs of blood more specifically fetal hemoglobin that could only belong to a child under six months of age oh my well okay yeah now's the point where I'm like oh big brain Simon maybe we should have investigated just a little bit because okay they look in the car now i'm thinking well they murdered the kid or the kid died ahead of time they went camping blah 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 to all to set this all up they were like oh yeah yeah the kid's in the tent the kid's asleep and then they're like oh my god the kid's not in the tent the kid's not asleep it's been taken by a dingo just to cover up this whole thing like they didn't take the kid and murder that kid that night but it had happened before and then they're using this whole camping story to to cover it up Police allege that on the night of seventeenth of August nineteen eighty, Lindy Chamberlain had not lain her two month child in the tent, but had taken Azaria to the front seat of the Yellow Holden. There she had cut the child's throat with a pair of scissors. Holy sh on the cutting edge uh, on the cutting edge of which were found traces of fetal haemoglobin. She concealed the body in a large camera case. Lindy then returned to the campfire to feed one of her young sons some baked beans she had retrieved from the car. A few minutes later, Lindy, Lindy allegedly feigned, hearing a disturbance in the family tent, headed over there and screamed repeatedly that a dingo had taken her baby. There was a vague awareness among the campers that there was a dingo infestation in the area at the time so it was possible that lindy could have concocted this ruse to cover up the intended crime there we go now we're now we're thinking now we're thinking police alleged that lindy splashed a bit of blood over the tent to simulate a dingo attack in order to give the search dog the scent of Zaria. lindy opened the car door to it while Zaria's body was still in there later in the middle of the night as the few people who had initially joined the search were found out across miles of dark and desert according to police lindy then removed the child's body from the camera case And buried her in a nondescript patch of the wastelands the clothes were found a week later neatly placed months later when ordered to turn the camera case over to the police they asserted that michael initially gave them the wrong one while he scrubbed the actual camera case clean before finally turning in the right one (laughs) dude oh you need to read the rules for criminals because if you have hidden a body in a camera case and then months go by and you haven't disposed of that camera case or and and or or cleaned it extremely thoroughly, extremely thoroughly, then, uh, well, you're just a bad criminal, aren't you? I mean, you're a bad person, and also bad at doing crimes. Which is good for us, because it means you might get caught more easily. Although I get the feeling that, didn't we start off this episode by saying what's it like if you're innocent and get sent to prison for the murder of your child? But I mean, dudes, this seems like, I mean, there's a lot of evidence stacking up. A second inquest was held in September 1981, seven months after the conclusion of the first one. This time, Lady Chamberlain was charged with Azaria's murder, and Michael Chamberlain was charged with being accessory after the fact for having become aware of what happened and helping to cover up his wife's alleged crime. oh complicated. Right, would I help my mum, my mum, my, my wife cover up a crime? Let's just leave that one not answers. Because... on again trouble in the future if my wife commits a crime and then people like simon said that he would lie send him to prison the trial when the case went to trial in 1982 all witnesses who were at the campsite that night held firm with lindy's version of events many of them reported hearing or seeing dingoes in the area a nurse sally la low who had been present on the evening in question even asserted that she heard a baby cry out loud. Uh, cry out after Lindy Chamberlain had returned from the tent to feed her son. By this point, according to the police theory, the child would already have been deceased. However, one witness's testimony of the precise timing of her recollection of a noise certainly was not decisive, exculpatory evidence. Eyewitnesses, or in this case, ear witnesses, are notoriously unreliable. Yeah, you could have easily added that in, in your mind after the fact, be like, no, 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 I definitely heard something. And it's like that is just utterly useless like i just like david said eyewitness testimony there's a there's a there's debate there's strong arguments to be said that eyewitness testimony should just not be considered like we should just be using forensics if someone says i saw this person murder this person it was them there is an argument that we shouldn't use that because it's just so unreliable the prosecution argued that sally had been coached by the chamberlains into believing she heard a child cry out after lindsay had returned to the campfire it doesn't take much coaching it's like you heard that right you heard that did you You definitely heard that yeah yeah i heard that and then a few moments later you're like you convince yourself you did easy but the defense got stronger lindy and michael's legal team pointed out that the signs of fetal hemoglobin found in the chamberlain's car might have come not from blood but from spit or snot which would also show up under the hemoglobin test Any, uh, and anyone who's ever spent five seconds in the presence of an infant child knows how common these substances could be and how they have a tendency to get everywhere yes preach uh, furthermore it would explain lindy's handprints on azaria's jumpsuit as she and did the handled the child she had simply touched the baby she had simply touched a bit of baby spistle it was only a little more difficult but plausible to explain why the same hemoglobin was found on the cutting edge of the scissors I have to say I was like hemoglobin is blood so it's got to be blood but if it can be spit that's a pretty good defense that's a pretty good defense but this is going to be on an edge isn't it like right now if that went to the jury woo, it's gonna be tricky you really gotta push that hemoglobin does not mean blood doesn't mean blood angle otherwise you're screwed i think this would be a very very close on the jury thing but you got to all beyond all reasonable doubt i would say they just introduced reasonable doubt here Furthermore, defense experts disputed the idea that the blood spatter indicated Azaria's throat had been cut with scissors and a dingo researcher was called in to assert that the teeth of a dingo could in- could also inflict such a wound. A small number of canine furs were also found in the tent and on Azaria's jumpsuit, though these could have come off a local domestic dog and or been transferred to the clothes in the week they lay in the outback. Furthermore, the dingo expert asserted that the dingo was fully capable of removing an infant child from its clothing without damage damaging the garments citing the example of a female dingo in captivity had opened a package of meat without damaging the wrapping paper as this last anecdotal assertion did not seem to carry much weight with the jury yeah I mean also the dingo guy's been brought in on the side of the defense hasn't he so be like yeah 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 dingoes once did this (laughs) it's like okay it doesn't seem very convincing Instead, the defense pivoted to assert that Wallace Goodwin, the search party member who'd initially found the clothes, had found the jumpsuit and singlet lying side by side instead of the singlet being tucked inside the jumpsuit. Constable Frank Morris disputed this version of events, saying that the singlet was tucked inside and only the top four buttons of the jumpsuit were undone. After briefly picking up the clothing to check inside for human remains, Morris claims that he placed the clothing back on the ground exactly where he found them and so they could be photographed yeah what reasons he got to lie the singlet was discovered to be inside out within the jumpsuit Blindy chamberlain insisted that she never put the baby singlet on inside out was always very careful to do so and that this was not possible unless the police had tampered with the evidence uh yeah it's also night and you're camping it's like yeah of course i don't put on my kids clothes back to front obviously not but I mean i've probably started putting it on back to front at one point and been like "Ah, oh, this is back to front ah, ha, ha, let's change it but also if you're camping and it's night i'd say it's you could definitely make that mistake if you don't even if you don't normally do it however in the eyes of the jury this remained a simple exculpatory assertion by the defendant in a murder trial with no evidence to support it. On cross examination, Lindy's story revealed an inconsistency. She claimed that in addition to a jumpsuit and singlet, she had clothed Baby Azaria in a cardigan, or more precisely, a matinee jacket, to keep her warm. No such item was found with the jumpsuit and singlet four kilometres from the campsite, nor was it found anywhere else. Public spectacle, unfortunately, played a role. It did not help Lindy's case either, with the jury. Or with the public, that she did not seem to grieve openly in any way. In, a, in the way that an innocent woman who had just lost her child was generally anticipated to grieve. I think uh, uh, anticipating people's grieving is not something that people should do. People de- grieve in different ways, and when someone's just lost a kid or someone's super close to them. I think they get a lot of slack and how they want to deal with that. And, yeah, so I'd kind of completely ignore that. If she looks stoic or whatever, then uh, let her look stoic. Maybe that's how she's dealing with it. She was stoic, argumentative. It also did not help that by the time Lindy stood trial, trial, she was pregnant again, implying to some that she had not properly taken the time to mourn his area. Again, stop assuming that she would do... Stop assuming you know how she would deal with this grief or how you would deal with this grief, because you probably don't. The Australian public were also suspicious of Seventh-day Adventists and insinuated that Lindy and Michael belonged to some kind of fringe Christian wacko sex cult, holy (laughs) Most absurdly, the public objected to the fact that Lindy had the habit of dressing his area in all black, implying some sort of weird satanic influence. When in actual fact black and dark navy dresses were becoming fashionable for infants in the early 1980s a false anonymous tip helped to spread the rumor that the name is meant sacrifice in the wilderness when in actual fact it was hebrew for helped by god all the speculation was circulated industriously in the press in order to sell papers <laughs> it's like fashion for kids for babies i'm like i don't know i got two babies two kids one's two one's like two and a bit months and i'm like i don't know i don't really go shopping for clothes but I've been to, like, some stores, and I was in, what was it? It was some designer, like, uh, maybe it was Ralph Lauren, and I'm in there, and I'm just buying some trousers for myself, like a normal person, and they have, like, clothes for kids, and I'm just like, well, oh, that's, a, that's a pretty cute little jumper, and I'm like, oh, that's, like, the equivalent of like $200 or something, and I like, bet they're going to grow out of this in about two months. I'm going to have these trousers for years. It's just so bizarre. I just don't understand it i guess people just want to it's like a showing off thing it's weird i don't know i'm always just looking for the least branded stuff possible like i just the 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 polo trousers just happen to fit me extremely well uh if i i don't care like and they also don't have any logos on them which i like um but like the ralph uh, the the ralph lauren polo shirts i don't buy because they have that horse on them and it's just i don't like that branding i don't like branding in general just uh what are we talking about oh yeah uh baby's fashionable designer clothes is so stupid It's so stupid and lindy's assertion that a dingo had killed her baby was routinely mocked as far-fetched dingoes generally did not attack people and inflict serious injuries much less kill them and evidence of them hunting children was and remains today extremely rare There was no evidence on the clothing that the child had been dragged across four kilometers of rough desert, and traces of dirt and vegetation on the clothing were consistent with those found around the camp, not in the area where the clothes were found. There was also major arguments between the defense and prosecution teams about whether a dingo could even carry an infant in its jaws over long distances without dragging it. Dingoes are relatively small compared to wolves, or even large breed dogs. They weigh only 20 to 30 pounds, which is 18 to 50 percent of what a gray wolf would Way. what the hell is this in actual useful units oh that's like 11 kilos these things are tiny these are really small is that correct that can't be right that cannot be right because then it's like saying that a wolf weighs like 20 kilograms it does weigh 10 to 15 kilograms what's it, it? <laughs> i feel like i just punched that in the face i mean i guess like a scorpion weighs like five grams or whatever and that would destroy me but this is just a dog it's just a fancy dog how much does that wolf dog weigh does a husky weigh 20 to 27 kilograms so these things are like half the size of a husky which i would say is like a fairly large scary wolf looking dog i'm suddenly less afraid of dingoes than i probably should be Put this in perspective. A two-month-old baby weighs approximately 12 pounds. Uh, so, what is that? Roughly six kilos, five kilos. Sounds about right. My two-month-and-a-half-month baby weighs like eight kilograms or something big. <laughs> it's very—he's a very big boy. Which is weird because me and my mu- wife are not particularly big, but we have a very large baby. <laughs> Uh, so that's roughly half the way to the dingo itself. The dingo would also struggle to hold a child in its relatively small mouth. To much of the public in 1982, the claim of a dingo attack seemed more likely to be an excuse by a desperate mother in order to cover up a grisly crime. Apparently, the jury agreed. On the 29th of October 1982, Lindy was found guilty of the infanticide of Azaria Chamberlain and sentenced to life in prison. Husband Michael was found guilty of being an accessory after the fact, since the jury did not believe he could have been ignorant of the murder and had tampered with crucial evidence, and he was given an 18-month suspended sentence. Wow, that's a big difference. I mean i know she did the murder but him covering it up suspended sentence mean he, he doesn't even go to prison while his wife is in prison forever i mean for a life sentence i don't know what that is in australia life prison we're doing a lot of googling today i, pro, I, I apologize the minimum non-parole period of a life sentence varies between jurisdictions uh and between different crimes blah 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 i don't know where melbourne is but let's say it's in western australia because that's what comes up Look, look, look let's just assume that it's similar enough, attracts a minimum non-parole period of seven years while the equivalent term in Queensland is 15 years. So between seven and 15 years. <laughs> seven years for a life sentence is like prison for life. You'd be like, no! No! And like seven years if you behave yourself and get parole. You'd be like, wait, seven years? Cool, I'll only be like 40. Nice. Or 41. <laughs> not that i'm planning on getting a life sentence in australia anytime soon but it's good to know that it's not that bad and by anytime soon i mean ever i don't know why i said like anytime soon but it's like no 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 in about 10 years i'm planning on committing some australian crimes moving to australia doing some murder <laughs> not really on november the 17th lindy was briefly taken out of prison to go to hospital to give birth to her fourth child before being returned to prison for her lifelong incarceration the matinee jacket. Lindy Chamberlain's legal team lodged an appeal of the verdict with the federal court on the grounds that there was sufficient reasonable doubt to nullify her conviction. This appeal was rejected in April 1983, which upheld that there was substantial evidence to convict uh, to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Lindy had murdered her own child. In other words, the theory of a dingo attack was considered at the time to be an unreasonable and unlikely explanation. Lindy then lodged an appeal with the High Court of Australia. This appeal too was rejected in February 1984. By this point, Lindy you'd already spent 16 months in prison for a crime she said she did not commit yeah but lots of people in prison say that they're in there it's like what are you in for oh, i didn't do it how many people do you think actually say that when in reality there's probably statistics on it, aren't there but the reality is you've been convicted by a court and a jury of your peers most of the time uh who has said that beyond all reasonable doubt you're guilty i mean even if there are some innocent people in prison which obviously there are the majority are got to be guilty, right? Because the whole legal system is based upon it's better for a guilty person to go free than it is for an innocent person to go to prison. So the majority of people in prison are guilty. I wonder what the stats are. I bet the majority say that they're not guilty. I bet that the majority say that they're like framed or they didn't do it or blah, 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 blah. But most of them did. Allegedly. Another two years went by, with Lindsay having exhausted all of her options, and in all probability she would spend the rest of her natural life in prison. She was only in her 30s. Wait, but a life sentence doesn't mean a life sentence. She's getting out after like 7-15 to 15 years if she behaves herself. Then on the 26th of January 1986, oh that is a long time later, uh, British tourist David Brett. I feel like I know someone called David Brett. <laughs> Ah, no, 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 their surname's slightly different. As a person I knew a long time ago, but... Wait, was that... was that their name? This is not important at all. I'm sure it's a fairly common name, and it's definitely not this guy, because he wasn't alive in 1986, that's for damn sure. Oh, and he also fell to his death. (laughs) So this is definitely not the David Brett that you know, Simon. Ah. Uh, his remains were discovered eight days later. His body had been mostly eaten by dingoes. As police looked for any of Brett's remains, they may have been they may have been carried off by dingoes. They came across a small infant's matinee jacket. What is a matinee jacket? It sounds like something you'd wear to like a matinee. Uh, is that a thing? Lindy Chamberlain insisted that it was the one she had put on Azaria when she put her child down for the night on August 17, 1980. The jacket was found half-buried near a dingo lair. On February 7, 1986, after nearly three and a half years of imprisonment, Lindy Chamberlain was released from prison while the case of Azaria's death was reopened. The Morling royal commission was launched in 1987 and found that the assertion lindy had murdered her daughter was not proved beyond a reasonable doubt the report did not however assert that a dingo had killed the child to do so would have shifted the burden of proof onto Lindsay lindy to prove her innocence by proving an alternate explanation wait that's not proving innocence by provide by proving an alternate explanation that's proving reasonable doubt you don't have to prove innocence you just have to be like oh, could happen that way could have happened that way couldn't it couldn't it and then if people are like yeah yeah i mean unlikely but yeah maybe maybe then you're okay to be clear the judiciary was not claiming lindy was innocent or that a dingo did it just simply that the prosecution's evidence did not beat the standard of proof which it didn't. Again, we must return to the ambiguity of this entire situation. The most incriminating physical evidence—the fetal hemoglobin on the car, scissors, and clothing—could just as easily have come from mucus as it could have come from blood. DNA testing did not exist yet. No traces of blood were found on the clothes that Lindy had worn that night. There were no traces of blood in the camera case, and uh, that the police alleged that Lindy had used to transport the body out into the desert. The blood-stained jumpsuit did not conclusively indicate one way or another whether the police whether the splatter was from a human or animal based attack there was no clear indication one way or the other whose clothes how the clothes were transported to the desert dingo or not the circumstantial evidence should not have been enough to convict yeah i mean i kind of agree like as soon as they were like that hemoglobin could be from spit i'm like well was it blood or was it not blood can't we figure that out and if it's not blood well she's not guilty right that i mean, yeah in september 1988 the court of criminal appeals overturned all the convictions in november a cry into the dark also known as evil angel star in meryl streep faithfully depicted lindy's version of events which in contrast to the public hostility in 1982 completely swung public sympathy her way and got streep nominated for an oscar How have i never heard of this movie meryl streep's great this is probably a good film in 1992 the government paid the chamberlains 1.3 million dollars in compensation for the inconvenience of having their lives utterly ruined by the justice system is that that's a lot of money and i kind of feel like wasn't this the jury like they had a criminal trial there was a jury the lawyers presented their arguments the government just did their job then the jury convicted them this is i don't know is i don't think this is the government's fault like right should they be paying out for that i i don't know and 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 you gotta always remember it's like yeah of course they should and then just remember you know it's the government's money comes from the taxpayer right so this is 1.3 million that isn't going towards a play park or a hospital or something a third inquest was held in december 1995 the confirmed This confirmed the quashing of the murder verdict and registered the cause of Azaria Chamberlain's death as unknown. The evidence in favor of the dingo story was almost as circumstantial as the murder theory. While it was highly conceivable that a 30-pound dingo could have potentially carried a 12-pound infant to its lair at Uluru, removed the matinee jacket, then later removed the jumpsuit and singlet without excessively damaging them four kilometers out in the desert while the child's remains were never found, it could not be confirmed. One really needed the remains with clear markings of a dingo attack or Lindsay to directly and clearly see her child being taken. Almost two decades passed. Lindsay was still understandably dissatisfied her name had not been completely cleared and was distrustful of the justice system. On the 30th anniversary of Azaria's death in 2010, "Yeah, but your name being cleared, you're 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 not guilty. Like you're not in prison. You, you don't have to prove your innocence at that point." "Yeah, I mean, there's questions around it, but you're innocent." you're innocent in the eyes of the law and sometimes you just got to be satisfied that that's enough it's very hard to prove innocence beyond all doubt it's why we don't try and do that unless your country is crazy whether like innocent are there countries where it's innocent to prove uh, guilty until proven innocent i feel like there are and i feel like that's insane i'm googling again okay for all we can rely on quora uh india wow really according to india's legal system everyone from petty thieves to infamous terrorists uh presumed innocent. oh okay this uh-huh, uh this guy's just got some opinion piece okay this is it it's lot <laughs> this is the problem with the internet and Quora in particular it's like yeah well have you looked at this case this person was this it was exactly that and it's like look i just want to know what the law says not not your opinion on a bunch of shit that i don't care about person on quora god damn I'm leaving it behind. We're not going to do it today. On the 30th anniversary of Azaria's death in 2010, Lindsay launched an online campaign to have Azaria's death certificate changed to reflect that she had been killed by a dingo with large-scale and sympathetic public support and considerable public pressure. a fourth inquest was held between 2011 and 2012. It's It's just a little of that money being spent. The existing evidence from 1995 was reinterpreted again. and additional anecdotal evidence was used from more recent attacks by dingoes on children on Fraser Island, indicating that yes, indeed, sometimes dingoes tried to kill infants. On the basis of this evidence, the coroner ruled that yes, without a reasonable doubt, a dingo had definitely killed Azaria Chamberlain at Uluru on the night of of August 1980, officially apologized to Lindy and Michael, and changed the course of death on a de- Azaria's death certificate. While ninety-nine per cent of the Australian public now sympathized thoroughly with Lindsay, and it seems quite probable that a dingo did indeed kill Azaria Chamberlain, the verdict of this fourth inquest actually generated some public criticism for being a PR stunt on the part of the Northern Territory Government rather than a calm measured act of forensics and jurisprudence. Publicity stunt, what are they getting out of this? Critics argued that there was simply not enough evidence to confirm a dingo attack beyond a reasonable doubt any more than there was to justify prosecution of the chamberlains in the first place by repeating the same mistake twice the australian judicial system potentially diminished rather than repaired public trust in its processes yeah you should just left it alone i don't know why you got involved to be honest just sounds like a waste of money and i'm not sure how this was a publicity stunt because it just seems like a waste of time and doesn't make anything look good aside from questions of legal precedent and procedure i'm quite glad that Lindsay, convicted of a crime when there was far too much reasonable doubt was eventually released she did not have to spend her entire life in prison for a crime she almost certainly did not commit grieving for her child i can scarcely think of a situation more awful nevertheless because of a miscarriage of justice she had to spend years in that nightmare scenario and that would inflict a wound that can never be fully healed. Yeah, she seemed, this should have been a, uh, she should have been like not innocent, but just not guilt. I mean, innocent by virtue of just, there's not enough evidence. This isn't reasonable doubt. I mean, sorry, that is enough reasonable doubt. Definitely. Anyway, moving on. That's right. That's right. (laughs) I took a little break because I need some extra caffeine in my life. It's a Pepsi Max. Normally I'm a Diet Coke man. But, uh, they didn't have it in the store, so I got a Pepsi Max, and I have to say, it's pretty, pretty damn good. Uh, okay, so now we move on to what I guess is the second case. This feels like it should be a 2 party because I just checked the camera when I went to get my Pepsi. And, uh, I feel like when you say when I get when to get a Pepsi rather than when to get a Coke, it sounds like you're a bit try-hard. Like, uh, actually, I prefer Pepsi. I'm a connoisseur of all the colas and uh pepsi is where it is at uh um yeah we've been running an hour so it's kind of at the point where i'd maybe split it into a two-parter but well i guess i'm not doing that so let's carry on you're welcome for the ultra long episode When i can barely keep up with the production schedule as it is okay casteline fulbig and the dingo defense The dingo defense is a plausible but unverified explanation of how an infant has died which is provided as an alternative to murder that explanation need not even be the most likely explanation it could even be considered outlandish with a low probability of happening but it must at least be plausible yeah this is the idea of reasonable doubt it's like it's just just gotta be plausible just a little bit plausible just enough to be like oh yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure not guilty the dingo defense in cases of infanticide only has power in situations where the conviction for infanticide is based on circumstantial evidence and where there is possible room for reasonable doubt you're welcome and quite a few infanticide cases are ambiguous due to the ease with which an infant can be murdered without leaving many signs of foul play. The alternative explanation does not need to be proven, but just needs to have enough evidence to bring reasonable doubt upon a case. We shall now examine another Australian case of infanticide, where, where one of the most spectacular and improbable of dingoes has been trotted out by Nobel Prize winners, no less, to instill greater reasonable doubt in a case that had previously been thought open and shut. Wait. So the dingo defence is basically reasonable doubt. Just throwing in something that it's just like, yeah, this uh, this introduces enough doubt i have no idea what nobel prize winners have to do with it but wow okay that's a big deal Kathleen folbig was born june the 14th 1967 to father thomas Britton, a construction worker and her mother kathleen donovan a 2019 psychological report surmised that kathleen had likely been sexually abused by her father during infancy a year and a half later on the evening of january the 18th 1969 britain murdered donovan by stabbing her 24 times holy shit. i'm confused Kathleen Folbig, so Thomas Britton is the granddad, Kathleen Folbig's the daughter, Thomas Britton abuses Kathleen Folbig, which is crazy, and a year and a half later on the same evening, Britton murdered Donovan, okay, so the father, the grandfather murders the grandmother, why is this so hard to get my head around, oh my god, okay, 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 here we go, one report suggests that her motive was Britain was furious over her partner's severe neglect of, her infant daught- of their infant daughter. The father was arrested the same night. He served 15 years in prison for murder and then was deported back to England. I am so f***ing lost. I am so lost. Oh, it's confusing because they're both named Kathleen and then David just refers to them as Kathleen. And I'm sure in his mind that probably makes sense, but I'm so confused. <laughs> Kathleen was pretty- Let's just Let's just roll with it. And I'm sure it'll all crystallize because I don't really want to send David an email right now just to confirm what's going on (laughs) because I'm too lazy and I'm not that good of a content creator. Look, it'll probably figure itself out. Castling was briefly placed into foster care for a year while she was still quite young. In 1970, she was moved to an orphanage. bid children's home. Two months later, she was- Why does Australia have hard to pronounce names? And also, everyone had a massive go at me one time when I said Melbourne. Like it's f-ing written, Melbourne. And then David says, It's Melbourne. What's going on? <laughs> Two months later, she was transferred to a permanent foster care placement, which lasted until she was a young adult. There is no evidence or serious allegation that Kathleen was abused during her time as a foster child, but I can't verify this. Conversely, her foster parents reported that between the ages of two and three, Kathleen had severe temper tantrums, aggression, and crying fits, and had difficulty regarding her intellectual growth. As she grew older, she became very isolated and withdrawn, is reported trying to dominate her siblings. Uh, is reported as a frequent and habitual liar and develops what child welfare report called problematic sexualized behaviors as a very young child all of which points to some psychological damage instilled by her trauma of the past regrettably standard fare for the casual criminalist okay so if i've got this right she was basically abused as a kid and then became all messed up and she spent time in the foster system and yes, as David said, standard fair for casual criminals. So I think we're on top of things. I apologize for my stupidity. I have a small brain. I think we're there. Everyone listening at home is probably like, <laughs> Simon, you're so dumb. Everyone followed along. You're actually paying attention to this and you can't even follow it. You small brain. So, okay, okay, relax. We're there. Let's carry on. During a breakdown in her relationship with her foster mother, Kathleen dropped out of high school and moved out. She worked a series of unskilled jobs. At age 18, Kathleen met Craig Fulbig, age 23, in a club in Newcastle, New South Wales. They married two years later in 1987. Four Deaths in a Diary Kathleen and Craig Folbig's first child, Caleb, was born on the 1st of February, 1989. The baby boy breathed noisily and was diagnosed with a mild case of laryngio... laryngomalacia. Alright. Laryngomalacia where overly soft infant cartilage in the upper larynx collapses during inhalation. The doctor said that Caleb would grow out of this soon as he aged. Nineteen days later, Caleb was put to sleep in a room adjoining the one Kathleen Folbig shared with Craig. Caleb fussed from midnight until 2 a.m., after which Kathleen Folbig noted in her diary, finally asleep, before going back to bed herself. Caleb was found dead by his mother a few hours later. Caleb's death was officially attributed to SIDS, or sudden infant death syndrome, with comments about complications from laryngeal... Blah, my, see, yeah, God, the, the, the cartilage thing. In short, Caleb's mark condition was hypothesized to have caused him to suffocate in his crib. A few months later, Kathleen Folbig became pregnant again. Her second son, Patrick, was born on June third, 1990. Kathleen Folbig later wrote in her diary, this was the day that Patrick Allen David Folbig was born. I had mixed feelings this day, whether or not I was going to cope as a mother or whether I was going to get stressed out like I did last time. I often regret having Caleb and Patrick only because your life changes so much. And maybe I'm not the per- not a person who likes change, but we will see. Normally, I'm like, don't write. I, this is just, she's just writing in her diary. I don't think this is indicative of anything. Like, I get the feeling David's doing some foreshadowing towards that. They're going to be like, look, what you wrote in your diary, you didn't even want your children. That's it. Chill out. I don't keep a diary. But if I did, there'd certainly be times where it's like three o'clock in the morning, my child is going absolutely bananas. And I've got a busy day at work that I say, where I'm like, what have I done? (laughs) I remember. It's a little, uh, it's not like embarrassing. Maybe it's bad to admit, but I remember it was, like, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. It was exactly the situation. It's like it had been so many nights. And I'm like, what have I done? What have I done? When I did have kids, I got to sleep through the night. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, like, it's all worth it. And it's wonderful. And I uh, I, I love my kids. They're super awesome. But goddamn, <laughs> 3 o'clock in the morning. And you're like, what have I done? Uh, okay, let's just move on from that Crisis. <laughs> Patrick was tested after his birth and was shown to be perfectly normal and healthy. Craig took informal paternity leave to help out with his care. Four months later, on October 18, the 1990, there was some sort of incident at the Folbig home. Craig woke up to the sound of his wife screaming. Patrick had gone limp and was not breathing. The father used CPR in the infant, and he was rushed into hospital in an ambulance. Whatever had happened, Patrick now had brain damage. He was diagnosed with epilepsy and cortical blindness. Exactly four months later, on February 18, 1991, Craig Folbig was at work. When his wife phoned him, it's happened again. She said, Patrick had died. He was recorded of dying from asphyxiation due to an airway obstruction from an epileptic fit brought on by encephalopathic Uh, disorder of an unknown cause or in other words brain damage which the doctors had no idea how he received wait didn't he receive it from the first time that he had the uh the when he didn't have oxygen to his brain because he was suffocating i don't know medicine it's complicated a year and eight months later on august the 14th 1992 kathy forby gave birth to a third child a daughter named sarah on august the 5th 25th 1993 sarah was taken to the gp because she had a standard creep cough and was started on a round of antibiotics she died oh my god this is so this is so i'm less traumatized by this because i just get the feeling david's gonna be like yeah 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 they were there was there was murder but maybe there's not and in which case i should be much more sad for these people um and now I feel like a bit of a d- because I was just assuming this is gonna to lead to them being criminals of some kind. Or yeah, that wasn't that's not a very nice assumption assumption, Simon. <laughs> Jeez. These people have four kids die. How about some sympathy? Four, three three, four, third, three. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so tired. <laughs> what's actually wrong with my brain (laughs) she died on august the 29th four days later the autopsy found sarah had a congested uvula hematoma and profuse streptococcus in the lungs which had stopped her from breathing kathleen falbig wrote in her diary sarah left us at 1am but the child had not been found dead until hours after that time Wait, that's weird. Several years went by without the Folbigs attempting another child. In late 1996, Kathleen Folbig again became pregnant. On January the 1st, 1997, she wrote in her diary, And now the year gone, and what a year to come. I have a baby on the way, which means major personal sacrifice for both of us, but I feel confident about it all going well this time. I'm going to call for help this time, and not attempt to do everything by myself anymore. I know that that was the main reason for all my stress before, and stress made me do terrible things. Ah." Uh... Uh, 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 this just went from, like, writing down your feelings to, uh, you crossed some line of, like, crime writing down. Or implications. Come on, my dude. No. No. A month later, on February the 4th, 1997, Fulby wrote in her diary, Still can't sleep. Seem to be thinking of Patrick and Sarah and Caleb. Makes me seriously wonder whether I'm stupid or doing the right thing by having this baby. My guilt uh, for how responsible I feel for them all haunts me my fear of it happening again haunts me my fear of craig and i surviving if it did haunts me as well okay my guilt for how responsible i feel for them still haunt, uh or haunts me uh that doesn't imply anything that could just be she feels responsible and if they did all die innocently of innocent causes then you, st- you could still feel guilt for that i mean however unjustifiable that guilt may be laura Fulbert, but that th- th- made me do terrible things <laughs> Laura Folbig was born on August the 7th, 1997. Evidently, Kathleen was smitten with her new child. On October the 25th, Folbig wrote in her diary, I think Laura is beautiful compared to Sarah. She was cute, but Laura has a special look about her. That is a very weird thing to write. I don't think you should be comparing how your child looks, especially with your dead child. That's creepy. Her slight difference in looks gives gives her a beautiful face. Not just pretty, cute, and cuddly, but gorgeous and beautiful. Well, so far, anyway. Looking at a video, Sarah was boyish-looking. Laura has definite feminine features. They're all chalk and cheese, and truthfully, just as well, wouldn't have handled another one like Sarah. She's saved her life by being different. Um... Yeah. 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 And look, we have this diary, I'm assuming, because at some point it became part of an investigation, and it was subpoenaed, I think that's the word, where they take your stuff to look through... (laughs) which in this case is like uh-oh uh that terrible things with and she saved her life by being different is really implying some dark stuff there and then a couple of weeks later on november the 9th Folbig wrote craig has a morbid fear about laura well i know there's nothing wrong with that nothing out of the ordinary anyway because it was me not them think i can handle her fits of crying better than i did with sarah with sarah all i wanted was her to shut up and one day she did okay well, there's nothing wrong- let me just repeat that. Well, I know there's nothing wrong with her. Nothing out of the ordinary anyway, because it was me, not them. That sounds like you're just admitted to murdering your three children, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Kathleen? And again on December the 8th. Had a bad day today. Lost it with Laura a couple of times. She cried most of the day. Why do I do that? I must learn to read her better. She's pretty straightforward. She either wants to sleep or doesn't. Got to stop placing so much importance on myself. Must try to release my stress somehow. I'm starting to take it out on her. Bad move. Bad things and thoughts happen when that happens. It will never happen again. And again on December the 31st. Getting Laura to next year ought to be fun. She'll realize a party is going on and that will be it. Wonder if the battle of the wills will start with her and I then. We'll actually get to see. She's a fairly good-natured baby, thank goodness. It will save her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned. <laughs> what are you doing writing all this stuff down? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? You're, you're essentially like anyone who reads this is like you're admitting to the murder of your three previous kids. You psycho. And again, on January the 28th, 1998, I feel very depressed, very depressed with myself, angry and upset. I've done it. I lost it with her. I yelled at her so angrily that it scared her. She hasn't stopped crying. Got so bad I nearly purposefully dropped her on the floor and left her. I was restrained enough to put her on the floor and walk away went to my room, and left her to cry. Was gone probably only five minutes, but it seemed like a lifetime. I feel like the worst mother on this earth, scared that she'll leave me now, like Sarah did. I knew I was short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her, and she left with a bit of help." A year went by. On February the 25th, 1999, Laura was taken to the doctor with a respiratory infection. She was treated with paracetamol and pseudoephedrine. 23 hours before she died, 18-month-old Laura was videotaped by her father swimming and gib- giggling in the backyard pool. It was Aussie summer. She seemed perfectly healthy. She displayed none of the symptoms of the myocarditis and inflammation of the heart muscles that had alleged to have killed her. Kathleen was not with her child in the videotape. She had kept a distance from her, wanting nothing to do with Laura after she lost it with her the day before, knocking the child over. The next morning, while Craig Folbig was at work, Kathleen made triple zero call to the ambulance service. She said, My baby's not breathing. I've had three go already. On February the 27th, 1999, Laura Folbig died. Not long afterward, Craig Volbig found his wife wife's diary, and he called the police. God damn! Like the husband in this situation, that's got to be so crazy. That's so sad. Poor Craig. The trial. Craig Folbig said that over the years, it had sometimes occurred to him that his wife, Kathleen, might have had something to do with the deaths of their four children. Her acute distress immediately after each death was intense. She would stand by the crib screaming. But after each child was declared dead in hospital, Craig Folbig said his wife's reaction became relatively detached and disengaged. She would immediately pack all their belongings away, taking photos out of frames and off the mantelpiece. Kathleen would never mention their names to Craig again. Whenever the tragedies came up in conversation, Kathleen then engaged in what Craig called her broken sparrow routine, where she would seem to cry on cue. When Craig discovered Kathleen's diary and took it to the police, several passages, like those quoted above, raised red flags about foul play. They opened a murder investigation and questioned Kathleen. They also planted several listening devices in the Falbig home. Whoa! Okay. That's fairly intense. Is that legal? Folbig was recorded walking around the home rehearsing her evidence for court and practicing whether she she cried at the right occasions. Detective Bernie Ryan said, The investigation has been an uphill battle because it's very hard to believe that a mother can kill her children. If we could have found an illness or some disorder that caused the death of these children, we would have gladly found it. We searched, and unfortunately we couldn't find anything. All we found, everything we found, led us to Kathleen Folbig. Kathleen Folbig was arrested on April 19, 2001, two years after Laura's death, and was charged with four counts of murder. A trial began in 2003 and lasted seven weeks. The prosecution said she'd killed her children by smothering them during periods of frustration. There was no physical evidence of intentional suffocation. This is because signs of smothering are extremely difficult to discern. Infants do not require high amounts of pressure and do not have the strength to move out of harm's way. Markings are rare compared to older children or adults who will instinctively begin to struggle. One possible sign is frequent visits to the hospital before the death from previous attempts, but this would only apply to Patrick and none of the other children. Another sign of intentional suffocation might be secondary injuries from child abuse, but these were largely absent from the Folby case. Sometimes when a child is smothered, there is presence of blood in the nose and mouth from overly applied pressure, but not always. Intentional smothering is sometimes done during the day or evening, whereas most SIDS cases occur overnight indeed two of the four big deaths happen during the day finally a natural illness may show symptoms in the hours before death whereas victims of intentional smothering are seen as being perfectly healthy right up to the moment they're deceased none of these things to be clear absolutely none of them are conclusive intent indications of intentional smothering generally speaking it is a phantom crime difficult to confirm SIDS, or sudden infant death syndrome, is what is known as a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning it is only assigned once coroners have failed to find and definitively confirm a specific physical cause of death. And after an investigation into foul play has been completed, one may surmise in addition to a SIDS diagnosis the likely cause of death, but that is not the same thing as confirmation. In other words, SIDS is not a disease in itself, but a diagnostic shrug of the shoulders. SIDS accounts for roughly half of infant deaths globally. Of these cases, an estimated 5% thought to be the result of intentional suffocation. No, that's crazy. That's crazy. One in 20? One in 20? So half of infant deaths? So one in 40 infant deaths are intentional murder by the parents. I can't believe that that's correct. That's so crazy. The prosecution's case rested on the idea... Have I done my maths wrong there? That's nuts. The prosecution's case rested on the idea that it was highly unlikely that four infants in the same family would suddenly die... With only the only witness being the mother. This harkens back to what is called Meadows Law, named after a British pediatrician, Sir Samuel Roy Meadow, famous for research on Munchausen's by proxy, as one of the UK's foremost experts on child abuse. It's so Munchausen's by proxy. Munchausen's is where you pretend you're sick or get sick on purpose because you like the attention of doctors. I know this from the TV show House. Munchausen's by proxy is where you get the attention of doctors through your children. I think I also know that from House. You wouldn't believe the crap people let me get away with Meadows' law is, one, sudden infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder. This statement is based on the extreme likelihood that multiple SIDS cases would occur in some house in the same household. There's a famous UK case about this. Um, There's a famous UK case about this. Which i don't remember any details of but it involved this very very thing i think it's more recent than this though although i guess sir samuel roy meadow could be quite a recent thing but uh he sounds like old school doesn't he it sounds like some 18th century name in the uk case of sally clark oh maybe this is it where in 1999 she was accused of murdering her two sons meadow as an expert witness okay so he's a he's a contemporary dude just with a super old school name took the probability of one SIDS death occurring in an affluent non-smoking household of 8,500 to 1 and squared it to show the odds of two such deaths occurring, which is 73 million to 1. In Volbig's case, the odds of three deaths occurring would be 5.3 quadrillion to 1 and four deaths would be 28 nonillion to 1. One could see how the cool-handed logic of Meadows' law would appeal to the mind of a scientist yeah and okay so those statistics do work but what if there is some like our understanding of genetics is is not very good it's still fairly weak about how people's genes combined together could cause different things and we certainly don't have a complete knowledge of medicine or anything like that so is it so unrealistic to think that maybe there is I don't know some way that these two people's genes combined that created a disorder that makes the kid more likely to die of SIDS. I think, I mean, it's either that or murder, isn't it? Because one in non-tillion is just uh, it's just not possible. It's just un un, un- It's just not possible. <laughs> simply like one in seventy three million, sure, um, will very 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 rarely happen. Like that's I guess similar to the lottery numbers. Were uh, five point three quadrillion? No uh nonillion no here's the problem meadows reasoning fell falls into what we'd call the prosecutor's fallacy we cannot confuse the extreme unlikelihood of something occurring with the likelihood of someone's guilt without taking into account all surrounding circumstances if we didn't there'd be a criminal investigation every time someone was struck by lightning in a population of millions with thousands of different psychological and environmental circumstances extremely unlikely events can still occur yeah one in 73 million, sure. One in uh uh five point three quadrillion, no. That is something that does not occur. And certainly not twenty-eight in a million. It's like that's not a fallacy. That's just like a statistical impossibility. It's like that's just not it just never happens. It's just way too unlikely. It's like the uh the folding of the, the shuffling of the deck of cards. Yes, uh a deck of cards can be shuffled. And then it can be shuffled again. Um, And then they can be exactly the same. But it's just never going to happen. Because it's just statistically impossible. Uh, it was statistically so unlikely that it's basically impossible and lest it be forgotten the act of parents murdering their child is also an extremely unlikely event or roughly one in 6.5 million in the case of sally clark where Meta gave evidence it was later discovered that her children had died of natural causes the probability of 73 million to one be damned yeah which is an absurdly unlikely thing but it is not quadrillion it is not nanillion the com- this completely ruins meadows reputation sally clark meanwhile fell into alcoholism after the ordeal and died in 2007 but during folbig's trial in 2003 meadows law was not yet discredited and it also shouldn't be discredited it's an important statistical thing to consider it's like yes one in 73 million sometimes happens one in the quadrillion doesn't why is it so hard to wrap your head around it's not it's not that complicated poor meadow i'm just a very logically brained person. Psychological reports on Kathleen Folbig diagnosed her with a narcissistic personality derived from childhood trauma. Lack of love in childhood allegedly led to an inflated ego, which made Folbig see her kids as possessions rather than separate entities. The psychologists noted that it's difficult to tell which narcissism cases are dangerous and which parents are just incompetent. In terms of contributing factors, roughly 14% of women in Australia suffer from postpartum depression while only 0.16 percent of them suffer from postpartum psychosis the court psychologist said that folbig did not have an antisocial personality disorder or a psychotic illness and that she was not a risk to the public but she's a potential critical risk To any children that she might have the sequence of events of each child's death would be inconsistent with the suffocation hypothesis all the physical maladies could also be explained by suffocation too then there were the diary entries the most important piece of circumstantial evidence for kathleen folbig's guilt over the course of several years she made several incriminating statements which seemed to imply that she was harming and murdering her children for her part folbig said at the time they aren't literal definitely not a window into my mind evidently folbig did not intend for her diaries to be discovered and read by anyone they were typically hidden and in one journal entry folbig wrote tell you what i don't think anyone could read this and find out all my secrets i write like a five-year-old the question was in addition to the suspicious circumstances of the deaths and the four children were these diary entries enough to remove any reasonable doubts of her guilt i mean it does seem pretty likely that she's murdering her children doesn't it the defense said Folbig did not harm her kids. They claimed she was a caring mother and pointed journal entries that showed Folbig's care and concern. They brought in character witness to attest to Folbig being a lovely person. The defense also pointed out that there were no direct admissions to the killings in Folbig's diary entries and suggested that the language used could be chalked up to a grieving mother's guilt. They pointed out how genuinely distraught Folbig always appeared to be when the ambulance and police responders arrived after another child's death. And of course, They reiterated multiple times that there was no uh, physical evidence that folbig suffocated her children on the question of reasonable doubt the possibility uh, of all four children dying of natural causes the prosecution told the jury i can't disprove that one day some piglets might be born with wings and that they might fly is that a reasonable doubt no there has never been in the history of medicine any case like this it is preposterous it is not a reasonable doubt it is a fantasy and of course the crown does not have to disprove a fanciful idea i'm in, this is entirely correct i think that's spot on from the prosecution it's like yeah 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 of course it's possible but it's so so unlikely it's basically vanishing in the end it was the suspicious diary entries that removed all reasonable doubt from the jury short of a full written confession those entries could not be more explicit without those entries it is likely the case would not even have been brought to court on may the 21st 2003 folbig was found guilty on three counts of murder one count of manslaughter and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm she was given 40 years on appeal february the 17th 2005 this sentence was reduced to 30 years and 25 years without parole due to the nature of her crimes putting her at the lowest of the low in the hierarchy of the women's prison system folbig was placed in protective custody to prevent her from being built beaten or killed by the other inmates inquiring into folbig's diaries In 2015, 13 years after Folbig's imprisonment, her lawyers were preparing a petition to the governor of New South Wales to open an inquiry into the convictions. The lawyers approached a professor at the Centre for Personalised Immunology at Australian National University, asking her to sequence the genes of and and her children to see if some sort of genetic mutation could have caused a series of natural deaths. It goes without saying that this sort of work would take time. That's what I was saying. Like, it's the the to one thing it's like that's impossible so it's not just chance but it's not necessarily just murder it could be some also weird genetic combination thing kind of surprised they didn't bring that up maybe they did but we just didn't mention it Meanwhile, the petition was submitted to the governor, largely castigating Meadows Law and the way that it was used in the trial of Kathleen Folbig. On August 22, 2018, the New South Wales Attorney General announced the opening of an inquiry in order to resolve doubts about how the treatment of the likelihood of four deaths in the same family may have impacted the court proceedings. In jail folwig was gradually weaned off protective custody and become what was called a den mother gradually winning over staff and fellow inmates in 2017 she was convicted of beating a fellow inmate for taking a toaster into her cell which Folbig pointed out was not allowed. Otherwise, Folbig's prison track record had been pretty good. During the inquiry, Folbig was questioned over a diary entry. She said, I didn't kill my children, and these diaries are just a record of how depressed I was and how many issues I was having. Those diaries are written from a point of me always blaming myself. I blame myself for everything. I took so much responsibility, because that is, as mothers what you do. When asked about the use of the phrase, dangerous mood, Folbig said, dangerous mood means depression to me. When I'm depressed or a little cranky, don't come near me. On the phrase about Laura saving her life by being different from her daughter Sarah, Folbig said, it was a mystical representation. That's me reflecting on my beliefs, as in karma and the children talking to each other and to God and all those sorts of beliefs that I had. It was a wrong relief and a warped belief, but I had a belief that my… Turn the page. Children had decided they weren't staying with me anymore, and I didn't understand why. When asked about the terrible things she might do, Fobbitt explains it could be placing my child down to let her cry for even 30 seconds. That's a terrible thing, in my view." The prosecution said in the inquiry that these were fanciful answers which cannot be believed. Folbig replied, It's no concern to me whether it can or cannot be believed. The prosecution pressed her, You accept that the ordinary plain meaning of those words which you have put together in your diaries can objectively be seen as different. And Folbig replied, Yes, but I was trying to explain that at the time of writing my diaries and the use of those words, that's not how my mind worked. To which one media observer (laughs) rightly commented, How very convenient! Yeah, yeah. Comus the ah uh, commis the dingo. Meanwhile, the team sequencing the Folbig genes had expanded to 27 scientists from Australia, Denmark, Italy, Canada, the USA, and France. Wow. In May 2019, while the inquiry was still ongoing, the team discovered that the two daughters, Sarah and Laura, had a mutation in their CALM2 gene that could cause heart arrhythmia and cardiac arrest. Sarah's heart condition would have been triggered by her treatment with antibiotics at the time, and Laura's would have been triggered by her treatment with paracetamol and pseudoephedrine. The odds of this gene mutation were exceedingly rare. Only 75 people in the world are known to carry the mutations in their CALM1, CALM2, or CALM3 genes that would have shown to be lethal in children. Nevertheless, here was a plausible explanation for the death of the Folbig girls. Kathleen Folbig had found her dingo. As for the two boys, Caleb and Patrick, the scientific theory is still in development. Geneticists from around the world are investigating whether a mutation in their BSN gene inherited from their father Craig could have led to their deaths. Such a mutation is known to cause epideptic seizures in, seizures in mice. While shakier than the first explanation, this nevertheless was another dingo. Scientists are able to explain the natural deaths of all four phobic children in a way that would have seemed implausible during the trial in 2003. I mean there's not enough evidence if there's only 75 people in the world who are known to carry these and they can be shown to be lethal that's only 75 people though there's no unless all 75 of them had died in their sleep as children from this thing which is almost certainly not the case because otherwise when would they have their DNA sampled and sequenced um I just this is going to be torn to shreds by the prosecution these results were duly introduced at the inquiry the prosecution expert jonathan skinner said that it would be very unusual to have calm 2 mutations being responsible that letter two people at such young ages yes thank you while another carrier kathleen folbig had been perfectly healthy and remained so into her 50s the defense countered that lethal calm to may- mutations may have asymptomatic carriers yo defense you are absolutely you've got you've got 75 people ever on the whole planet who have had this condition there is just not enough data at all at all at the end of the inquiry in July 2019, Justice Reginald Blanche conceded that due to the recent genetic evidence, it was quote "plausible that Sarah and Laura may have had a cardiac condition and that raises a possibility that it caused their deaths." Nevertheless, Blanche said it was an exceptional clinical scenario that had not been confirmed as cause of death, though an entirely plausible theory. According to the judge, what was written in the diaries and what was deemed to be "Falbigh's lies and obfuscations" when questioned about those entries did not remove Falbig's guilt for the murder of her children from beyond a reasonable doubt. The conviction was upheld and Folbig remained in prison. In October 2019, Folbig's legal team called for another review alleging bias in the inquiry. Justice Blanche was accused in public of being a misogynist who ignored scientific evidence. Folbig's legal team had begun the process of lodging another motion with the New South Wales Court of Appeal against her convictions. They argued that the new genetic evidence created enough reasonable doubt to quash them that seems unreasonable he's just interpreting this am i a misogynist for looking at that scientific data and being like there's not enough data it's just an interesting theory i mean of course that the legal team are going to say that they're going to be like he's a misogynistic biased person and it's like okay but he's a judge he's probably not super biased he's probably just looking at the evidence as i feel i'm doing i don't think misogyny has got anything to do with it i don't care I just don't think the science is there the results of the genetic research were published in november 2020 in a high-profile academic journal meanwhile on new year's day 2021 after kathleen folbig was transferred to a new prison she was beaten by a fellow inmate and given a black eye and several bruises due to her reputation as quote a baby killer Folbig said of the incident it took me over 16 years to obtain some respect from the staff and inmates in my last prison and show them i'm nothing like all the reports if you bothered to get to know me here i'm not even given that opportunity very sad. On the 4th of March 2021, 90 prominent Australian scientists and medical professionals signed a petition to the new South Wales governor asking her to pardon Folbig. They pointed out that there was now medical and scientific explanations for the deaths of Folbig's children. The petition said, "Miss Folbig's case also establishes a dangerous precedent as it means that cogent medical and scientific evidence can simply be ignored in preference to subjective interpretations of substan- circumstantial evidence. 75, 90 Australian scientists and medical professionals sign this, unless I am missing something absolutely spectacular. I just don't think that calm to gene research is there. It's like, yes, it can potentially cause this, but I just, I don't think it, I must be missing something. There must be something that either I have ignored or that isn't in the script that leads people to put so much weight behind this genetic evidence which it's not like oh yeah they all had a well-established genetic condition which kills children it's like no 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 this might have something possibly to do with half of the children's deaths it's just not there but apparently uh that is super misogynistic according to the uh, to the defense (laughs) i must be really missing something i must be missing something because 90 people signed this crazy I, I don't know. Wow. The weakness in the petition's arguments were as follows, in ascending order of severity. One, the academics placed too much weight on their qualifications and publications as an argument in and of itself. Two, the research into the BSN mutation, they... Uh, theory explaining the deaths of the two boys is more tenuous and the research is still ongoing three and worst of all the petition repeatedly uses the line there was no physical evidence of smothering at autopsy as medical professionals they almost certainly knew that evidence of intentional smother sm- suffocation of infants is difficult to discern by a standard autopsy if not exceedingly rare to find the New South Wales Court of Appeals rejected Folbig's motion on the 24th of March 2021. Professor Peter Schwartz, world-renowned cardiac genetics researcher said, "Whenever someone dies without obvious explanations and a molecular autopsy identifies a mutation known to cause sudden death, then there is then this is sufficient to diagnose that particular disease i have no idea whether Catherine folbig is innocent or guilty but i think she was sentenced on the basis of incomplete evidence and incorrect opinions a fair judicial system would acknowledge this and look again at the case on the basis of the novel expert evidence then it is entirely possible that the court will confirm the original sentence but without ignoring the new facts well in that case professor peter schwartz um i hope you didn't sign that petition because that petition was asking the governor to pardon i don't know it doesn't say if peter Swatch signed this but given this statement he shouldn't have um and that's i have i have the same opinion as him yes this is something that should be considered and it should go back to court and then it can be assessed by it can play out in the courts and we can work out whether this introduces reasonable doubt or not a pardon is just like no you're released from prison because of the power of the governor or whatever which uh, is absurd and that is not the correct way to do it we should do it this Schwartz guy's way and this touches on the nub of the issue the genetics researchers provided kathleen folbig with a plausible explanation for the death of all four of her children a dingo defense it does not really matter how likely this explanation is or whether or not it can be confirmed to have happened the question is whether it creates enough reasonable doubt to quash folbig's convictions from 1986 to 2011 the dingo account that exonerated lindy chamberlain was not confirmed by any coroner or inquest what kept her out of prison after the moorling commission in 1988 was the idea that even without the dingo story there was enough reasonable doubt in the case to overrule her conviction the question in the kathleen Folbig case is regardless of the genetic explanation was the rest of the evidence sufficient to enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt really it comes down to those strange and suspicious diary entries that's it like I don't know I- I'm not of the opinion that she should 100 percent be in prison and is guilty uh, because i think that evidence the the diary evidence is sir uh, is tenuous at best uh, i think that alone introduces enough reasonable doubt irregardless of the genetic stuff which i think maybe adds a half a percent a one percent pushing me in the direction of reasonable doubt like it is suspicious as f- those diary entries but I think that prosecution can get reasonable doubt and if I was on the jury I'd probably say I'm not sure and that is not guilty and that is she goes free don't know how I feel about that <laughs> we spent a long time with this case I feel like I'm on the jury as damning as they are I honestly do not have a strong opinion on whether or not a jury should or could convict off the back of them and on this decision hangs the balance of a potentially innocent woman being locked in a prison against possibly letting the unrepentant murderer of four children walk free and it reminds us of william blackstone's argument that it is better to let 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer so i'll leave you with what a linguistics expert who was called to the 2019 inquiry to look at the diary entry said while you make up your own minds quote in my opinion they had a singular plain damning meaning that is they were a virtual confession and the frustrating issue for me was that I couldn't be certain and I can't see why other people are so certain even if someone confesses in writing you as a police officer or a prosecutor or a lawyer of any kind would still want to test it are they making this stuff up I'm not saying that the guilty reading is impossible and I'm not saying it's totally unreasonable what I am saying is that it does not seem safe to me to presume that there's only one meaning and that that meaning is consistent with the deaths of four children Dismembered Appendices 1. The Crusaders cure Folbig's exonerational partner continues with her legal team, scientific researchers and public supporters. In Australia, public opinion is split. The question of her guilt or innocence has also become politicized. Because, well, it's 2021, so of course it has. 2. In the, the 1988 movie, A Cry in the Dark starring Meryl Streep dramatizing Lindy Chamberlain's ordeal is responsible for immortalizing the phrase, the dingo took my baby, which Streep yells multiple times in the film. Very few Americans actually saw the film, which they did, which did quite poorly at the box office. Nevertheless, the phrase was contorted into a dingo ate my baby, which in the USA is the second most common phrase used to refer to the used to refer to Australians after throw another shrimp on the barbie. The phrase a dingo ate my baby is featured in Seinfeld, The Simpsons, Two and a Half Men, Frasier, Late Night with Craig Ferguson, Supernatural, Family Guy, and the Rugrats movie Tropic Thunder, and many other shows and movies. I honestly wonder how many Americans who use this phrase are aware that it refers. To the tragic death of an infant and the wrongful incarceration of her mother. 3. There is no such thing as drop bears, which were mentioned at the start of the episode. Oh no! That's sad. Well, I won't be making a video about that, will I? Uh, it is a classic joke Australians play on tourists and newcomers banking on their fear of the wildlife here. It's a joke played to a degree and frequency that I actually find it annoying. (laughs) The Australians in our audience would be disappointed if I didn't try at some point, and I know that some of them out there will be having giddy fits of joy in front of their screens if I manage to fool you. You did, David. And I think, yeah, you did. You did. It's totally believable, because Australia's scary. And if I didn't, congratulations, Simon, on your robust critical thinking. <laughs> Dumber. <Donner. laughs> Either way, please don't fire me. Not until I've pitched you my concept for an April Fools' episode. Yes. Thank you, everybody. That was a long ass episode. My voice is actually slightly sore. Ah, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. However you consume this show. These long episodes, they're long to write, they're long to read, they're long to edit. Oh, thank you, Jen. Last but not least, I want to thank me. Did I thank Jen at the beginning? Jen, you do a legendary job producing this show. Um, they take a long time to make. The way you can reward us for this is, well, if you're listening, please leave a positive review. Unless you're like too long one star that would suck please leave us a review five stars preferred wherever you get your podcasts that would be amazing subscribe if you're on youtube like if you're on youtube and i will see you next time